morning. I want to welcome in uh, our other campuses today. So Nauvoo, Fort Madison, Burlington, great to have you uh, with us as we study God's Word here today. I I do want to take a moment before we get to the message, though, and I want to just uh, take some time to pray for uh, back to school, which for most of our uh, teachers, school employees, principals, and students, uh, of course, will begin uh, this week. And so uh, just, just to say this, we have such an opportunity really all across Southeast Iowa, West Central Illinois, uh, through our school systems. Uh, I don't know if you realize this or not, but a majority of our people are in some way involved in our school systems. And what an opportunity and really what a need for the gospel uh, in those places. And so I just want to encourage you, all of you who are a part of that, as you go back this year, uh, just to uh, take the opportunity that God is giving you to be a light for him, uh, to share the gospel through the way that you live and through the way that you speak and talk. And uh, we're going to be praying for you as you do. So let's do that uh, together as a body here, all right? So will you join me? Uh, Father, we come to you. Uh, What a privilege that we have to worship you. Uh, We pray that uh, we'll do that this morning with hearts full of all that you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, we want to pray now uh, as we're we're back to school this week uh, for many of us. Uh, Lord, I want to pray earnestly that this will be uh, for our students and our principals and our teachers and our school employees and our coaches and parents who are heavily involved in the schools, that this will be the best school year that they have ever had. And it'll be the best year in in the way that they conduct themselves, uh, the way that they rely on you, the way that they speak about you. Uh, We pray that their lives will be a sweet-smelling aroma that will attract people to the gospel. I know it's difficult, um, particularly in our public schools, to, to speak about you. Uh, I know it's difficult, uh, even maybe more difficult at times, to live for you. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit's power. Uh, we pray for um, our teachers in particular, that you will give them opportunities to love on their students and parents and to be able to model what it means to truly follow you. We pray for our students who face so many pressures. Uh, Lord, we just want to pray that they'll find their identity in you. We pray that they'll love you above everything else. And Lord, we want to pray that you'll use them in a great way to bring people to you and to make a huge impact here in this region and beyond. Lord, we pray now as we come to your word and we come to um, a tough book of the Bible here today, we pray that you'll give us grace to have ears to hear and hearts that are willing to hear what you have to say to us. Quite honestly, Lord, I believe that uh, many, most, all of us are somewhat blind to uh, issues that we wrestle with and that we're going to talk about today. And so, Lord, we want to pray that, uh, that you will speak to us and that we will be willing to hear. Lord, I want to pray that whatever uh, offense may be given will be an offense of the gospel uh, here today and that you will use that to call us back to you for your sake. Amen. All right, today we're going to uh, be in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Uh, I thought uh, about doing my Malachi joke again here this morning, but since you nearly booed me off the stage last week, I decided I would pass. Uh, but seriously, you guys need to get a sense of humor, okay? 
And uh, anyway, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, please turn with me to Malachi 1. If you need some help finding uh, Malachi, just find the page that says New Testament in your Bible. Flip back a couple of pages, and you will be uh, there. So uh, if you need a Bible, uh, grab one from the chair or pew in front of you. You can find Malachi on page 627. And I know that I say this uh, pretty much every week, but you're really going to want to see what I'm talking about today from God's Word for yourself, because there's lots of things we're going to talk about today that are potentially going to upset you, okay? And I want to make sure that you're not getting upset with me, but with the Lord, okay? Because he's the one that's speaking. It's not coming from me, it's coming from him. And if you want to be mad at me too, that's fine, all right? But, but uh, you need to see this uh, for yourself, all right? And while you're finding your way there, let me tell you that Malachi is a unique book of the Bible in a couple of ways. First, it contains the last words that God speaks to Israel for 400 years. While the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were likely written after Malachi, those are historical records of what happens when the Israelites return from exile, and in neither of them does God speak to his people directly. This means that once Malachi finishes his prophecy, the people of Israel won't hear from the Lord for four centuries. They won't hear from him until a guy by the name of John the Baptist appears on the scene, which, by the way, Malachi predicts at the end of his book. Second, Malachi provides a great summary of all the other prophets, major and minor alike. In fact, in some ways, Malachi uh, is an overview of the Old Testament as a whole. It's kind of like the Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament, all right? Now, by the way, for you slackers, all right, you know who you are. This does not mean that you could just read Malachi, study it, and be done with it, all right? But, but it is a good place to go if you want to kind of get the big picture of what the Old Testament is about. Now, with that in mind, let me set the context for you just a little bit. Malachi is what is known as a post-exilic prophet. Post-exilic. Now, I'm sorry uh, for the ACT word, all right? But, but it basically just means that he prophesied, he ministered after the Israelites returned from exile in Babylon. Through the pre-exilic prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, God had told the Israelites that if they didn't repent from their sin, he was going to bring judgment on them. And that's exactly what happened in the form of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They took Israel into captivity. Here's the, the good thing, though. God had also told them that this captivity would be temporary. And so 70 years after they end up in Babylon, God brings a remnant back to the promised land. So Malachi is prophesying to those remnant, to that remnant that had returned from Babylon. Now, as you can imagine, when the Israelites returned from captivity, they were a changed people. Historians tell us that they would never again give themselves to the rampant idolatry that had led to their exile. They tell us that the Israelites were so scarred by the exile and so scared that it would happen again that they became permanently hyper-religious. We, we see this 400 years later, right, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those hyper-religious groups that gave Jesus so much trouble. Now, the problem, though— with their hyper-religiosity, was that it became devoid of a real relationship with God. And in fact, by the time Malachi came on the scene, somewhere around 50 years after the exile's return, their hyper-religiosity had devolved into a cold-hearted indifference. 
The people were, were still religious for sure, but most of them were just kind of going through the motions. In other words, they, they looked kind of good on the outside, but their hearts were cold to God on the inside. Now, to use some modern terminology, the people in Malachi's day were what we today would call nominal Christians. The word nominal means in name only. So a nominal Christian is someone who is a Christian in name only. Let me use an illustration that, that might uh, be helpful. I've uh, come to the conclusion that there are a lot of nominal St. Louis Cardinal fans here in Southeast Iowa. Now, let's explain what I mean by that. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who, because, you know, we're near St. Louis, and because, generally speaking, the Cardinals do really, really well, uh, and it's kind of cool to be a Cardinals fan around here, that people kind of say, I'm a Cardinals fan. But there are a whole lot of them who are really in name only. You know, if you go to their home, there's not really any Cardinals paraphernalia. They don't have a hat. They don't have a shirt. Okay, they can't really name any St. Louis Cardinal other than Yadier Molina. Uh, maybe they'd say Ozzie Smith or something like that. That, right? All right, from decades ago. Uh, and they, they generally just don't have a whole lot of interest in a real relationship with the Cardinals. They just want to say that so that they fit in. Similarly, nominal Christians, okay, they, they want to claim to be Christians, okay? They want to identify in that way, but in reality, they are devoid of a real relationship with God. A nominal Christian is someone who is normally religious, or at least considers themselves to be, but who in reality isn't all that interested in truly following Jesus. And this is why the book of Malachi has so much to say to us today. You see, perhaps the greatest problem in our current Western church culture is nominal Christianity. It's the huge numbers of people who claim to be religious, who call themselves Christians, but who lack any semblance of a real relationship with God. And I need to tell you here this morning that as your pastor, this is the single greatest concern I have for our church. I'm greatly concerned that there are many of us who, to quote the Apostle Paul, have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. That's what it means to be a nominal Christian. It means to have an outward veneer of religiosity, all right, but to not have really any evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in and through your life. And honestly, I'm very concerned that this is the case for many of you who are listening to me today. That's why Malachi has the potential to be enormously helpful to us. You see, Malachi gives us both the symptoms of and the solution for nominal Christianity. Okay? And so here's what we're going to do here today. We're going to walk through the entire book this morning. It's only four chapters. Don't be too worried. And then we're going to conclude, okay? And first we're first going to look at the six symptoms of nominal Christianity. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the solution for nominal Christianity. So in the first part... We're going to do some self-diagnosis, okay? Kind of, kind of look at where maybe we are struggling with some nominalism. And then the second part, we're going to look at the solution for that nominalism. So let me give you then the, the structure of Malachi. This will be really helpful for you, especially if you're reading it um, on your own. In Malachi, we have six uh, what are known as disputations. Now, do you know what a disputation is? You know what a dispute is, right? Some of you had a dispute on the way to church this morning, right? 
you and your spouse going at it or you and the kids are going at it. You know, I know how it happens, all right? I know what it's like, all right? You're kind of going on. It's kind of crazy in the car. Everybody's at each other. And then you pull into the church parking lot. You say, okay, now let's put our happy faces on. Everybody walks into church like everything is wonderful, right? But you, you, no, okay. So, so you're doing it right now, okay? <laughs> you're doing it right now. So, so what we see, though, in Malachi, we see six arguments, that God's having with the Israelites. Six different times where he's accusing them of some things, and they in turn are accusing him of some things. And here's how it generally goes, okay? Uh, it generally goes with God saying, hey, you're doing this, and the Israelites responding with, how so? Or who, us? Now, if you have a teenager, by the way, you know exactly what this is like, right? You say, hey, you're having a bad attitude, and they respond with, how so? Or who, me? That's what's going on in Malachi, all right? And here's one of the things we need to learn right away about this, all right? Here's what it tells us about nominal Christianity. It tells us that we are often blind to it. In other words, if we are struggling with it, or if we are a nominal Christian, we probably don't think that we are, which is another reason that Malachi can be so helpful to us. So with that said then, here are six symptoms of nominal Christianity. The first one is ingratitude. Ingratitude. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Now, in this argument, the Israelites are questioning God's love for them because their lives haven't turned out exactly the way that they had hoped they would. The, the days after the exile, as you can imagine, were really difficult. They were really hard for the remnant that returned. And so this led them to question if God really loved them. And, and in response, God reminds them that of, of all the people on the earth, he has chosen them to be his. You see, the problem for the Israelites here is that they are focusing on what they don't have instead of on what they do have. You got that? It's all about, God, what have you done for me lately? Now, now we need to get this, by the way, because we do the exact same thing all, all the time. In fact, this is often where nominal Christianity starts. It starts when instead of being grateful for what God has done for us in Jesus— we allow our circumstances to cause us to question whether or not he loves us. We think, you know, if God really loved me, he, he would do this. If God really cared for me, he wouldn't allow this. Or, or if God, God really truly did love me, he would give me this, all the while failing to remember passages like Romans 5, 8, which tells us, but God demonstrates his love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's one of the most hurtful things a child can say to a parent? You don't love me, right? You don't love me. And if you're a parent, you've probably had this happen before. But, but how do you feel and what do you think? You might not say it, maybe you do say it, but you're definitely thinking it. When your child says to you, you don't really love me, 
If you really love me, you give me the new iPhone, right? You let me go out and do this with my, my friends. You don't really love me. How do you feel as a parent when you hear that word? What's going on in your head? What do you say? You're saying, how can you possibly question whether I love you given all that I have done for you? Now, if we feel that as sinful human beings, how do you think God feels when we say to him, do you really love me? And he says, well, what more could I do than give my son to die for you to prove that I love you? What more do you want? And that's why ingratitude is a clear sign that we might be a Christian in name only. Here's the second symptom of nominal Christianity, and that's self-service. In God's second disputation argument with the Israelites, he accuses them of worshiping him with their leftovers. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. All right, here's what God says. The Israelites, okay, are, are worshiping. He's talking about their worship, and he says, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. In, in other words, you, you say, what a burden it is to come to church. What a burden it is to serve. What a burden it is to give an offering. Man, this is really weighing me now. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Here God's saying, I'm a great king, and so I deserve your best, not your worst. I deserve your first, not your last. Now, let, me, let, me, let me ask you this this morning. Do you agree with what I just said? Do you agree that God is a great king? Is that true? Is that a reality for you? Well, if that is the case, then do the priorities in your life actually reflect it? If you believe that God is great, that he is awesome, that he is worthy of our praise, then, okay, are we giving him our best? Are we giving him our first? Is he the number one priority in our lives? If God is number one in your life, you're not going to give him the leftovers. You're not going to give him the goodwill donations of your life. Because if, if you do, it's a clear symptom, a clear sign that you might be a nominal Christian. Here's a third symptom. And the place where uh, this message might start to get uh, painful if it isn't painful already. The third symptom of nominal Christianity is self-centeredness. Take a look at verse 10 of chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. What's that abomination? For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it from your hand. But you say, why does he not? 
Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God's accusation against the Israelites here is that they're being self-centered rather than God-centered, particularly when it comes to marriage. And this self-centeredness has two components to it. On the one hand, the men are marrying foreign women, i.e. unbelievers. And on the other hand, they're divorcing their wives. In fact, it's very possible that many of them are divorcing their, their godly Israelite wives in order to marry unbelieving women. Now, the key word in these seven verses is, you should be able to pick it out, it's faithless. We know it's the key word because God uses it five times to describe what these Israelite men are doing in marrying unbelievers and in divorcing their wives. Now, the word faithless means treacherous. They're being treacherous. God describes marriage to unbelievers, okay, and divorce as Treacherous. Actually, he also calls it an abomination uh, before him. Very, very strong words. Here's what God is saying. He's saying in marrying unbelievers, okay, and in divorcing your spouses, you're committing treachery against me, against your spouses, and against the community, the faith community as a whole. Now, before we go further here, I need to be clear about a couple of things regarding uh, divorce. So, so please, especially those of you who have been uh, divorced, will you, will you please listen to me here? Because I know that this is a very sensitive subject, so, so you need to, to listen to me and hear, hear what I'm saying. Uh, as I've taught on several occasions, not all divorce is sinful. The Bible permits divorce in certain, 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 certain circumstances. So, so please know, I'm, I'm not saying that if you're divorced, this means you have a self-centered view of marriage. It, it's, it's very possible to be divorced and to hold to a God-centered view of marriage. Second, even if you have sinfully divorced, that sin can be forgiven. What's more, if you've repented and as a result have been forgiven, there's no condemnation for the divorce, either by God or by this church. I'm going to be really clear in regards to that. Now, with that said, though, I think we really need to consider here uh, what God is saying when he twice repeats his admonition that we need to guard ourselves in our spirit so that we are faithful to our spouse. So, so I, I want your attention here if you're married, and I want your attention if you hope to be married someday, which includes almost everybody, all right? Marriage is a very, very, I, you could add like a hundred varies on there, serious business. Incredibly serious business. And it's serious because it's a covenant, a commitment, not just between two people, but between three people. Now, now what, do, what do I mean by that? Why am I saying three? Well, you will note in verse 15, 
okay, that God says when a man and a woman come together in a marriage covenant, a marriage commitment, they are making a commitment not just to one another, but to God as well. That, that when a man and a woman come together, that God gives that union a portion of his spirit. Which means, it means really there's a lot of things it means, a lot of ramifications here, all right? But the big one is, is that marriage is not ultimately about us, it's about him. Somebody needs to say amen here, okay? Marriage, it's, it's not about us, friends. It's about him. We shouldn't enter into marriage in a self-centered way, but rather in a God-centered way. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 5 where he tells us that marriage is meant to be an illustration or a picture of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his bride, the church. The relationship that Jesus Christ has with us. Our marriages are so much bigger than us because our marriages are intended to point to the most important thing in the universe, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth, the wonderful truth that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so that we could be his. Your marriage has massive, massive implications. And, and therefore, we've got to be really, really clear that, that when we get into marriage, that we are making a commitment that it is going to be for a lifetime and that we are going to do whatever we need to do to build a God-honoring marriage to guard our spirit so that we are not faithless to one another. You know, we... We so need this word today, and we need the word, by the way, not just in our culture and not just in the church at large, but we need this word at Harmony Bible Church. There was a marriage and divorce problem in Malachi's day, and there is a marriage and divorce problem in our day. We live in a day where people just kind of come and go, and they throw marriage around, and they, they get in and out at relative ease. They get in, they say, hey, I don't think that I love her anymore. I think that there's someone over here who's more appealing to me. It's just not working out. It's not what I thought it would be. Or we have unreconcilable differences. Can, can I say to you this morning that all married couples have unreconcilable differences? <laughs> all right. Uh, even I've been married 22 years. Right? And uh, if you know us at all, you know that there couldn't be two different people to be married to one another. All right? She's from the South. I'm from the North. Okay. She's an extrovert, very much an extrovert. I am an introvert. Some would say very much an introvert. Okay. She likes to stay up late. I like to go to bed early. Sometimes we even like pass in the night. Like I'm saying good morning and she's saying good night. Like at the same time. All right. I like to be early. She's like, it'll start when I get there. Okay. <laughs> and, and so it's just we're, we're, we're very... Very, those things aren't going to be, they're not reconcilable. Okay? They're not. That's why we have to love one another. We have to work really hard at loving one another. And here's the thing. We have this idea in our culture that love is primarily a feeling. And so when you don't feel in love anymore, see you later. My friends, love isn't primarily a feeling. It's a choice. It's a commitment. When we go into a marriage, we have to commit that we are going to act in a loving way regardless of how we feel. So many people today are saying, I'll act like I love them when I feel like I love them. That never works for very long. 
You have to first of all say, I'm going to act like I love them and wait for the feelings to come along later. And by the way, the whole model here again is Jesus, right? Jesus, how do we know that Jesus loved us? How do we know? Because he laid down his life for us. He sacrificed for us. That essentially, by the way, is what a marriage covenant is. It's a commitment that I'm going to lay down my life and I am going to serve you and meet your needs the way that Jesus has done for me. It's not about us, friends. It's about him. And the way that we make it about him is by serving and loving our spouse. That's what marriage is about. Now, what does this have to do with nominal Christianity? You're like, how does this work? What, what, what does this fit in? How does this fit into what you're talking about today? Well, well, here's the thing. Someone who is passionate about their relationship with Jesus Christ is going to be passionate about what he is passionate about. And it's very clear that of all the things that God and Jesus are passionate about, they're passionate about marriage. And so if we're not passionate about our commitments to our spouse, that shows that we are struggling. We have a clear symptom, a clear sign of nominal Christianity. Can I just say to you, this is, by the way, we're going to go a little bit long here today, so just might settle in, get comfortable, all right? Can I just say, guard yourselves in your spirit. And can I speak specifically to our husbands here today? You need to do whatever you can to guard your spirit so that you are not faithless to your wife. Prioritize God's word. Prioritize your marriage. Pursue him and pursue your wife. Because if not, you might end up being faithless. And you will note, okay, here's a big, big warning. Whoever divorces his wife covers himself with violence. Covers himself with violence. If you're faithless, it ends up in violence for you, your spouse, your kids, your church, your community. That's what happens. It happens all the time. Guard your marriages. Number four. Fourth symptom of nominal Christianity is injustice. Now, I hit on this last week, so I'll be quick here. But in the fourth argument, the Israelites accuse God of being unjust. And in response, God tells them that his messenger of justice, which, by the way, is Jesus, is on the way. And that this isn't actually going to be good for them because they are the ones who are actually unjust. In fact, look at what God tells them in verse 5 of chapter 3. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you need to remember here that God is talking to people who are very religious, okay? He's talking to people who are faithful church attenders, okay? Faithful tithers, all right? Faithful, you know, serving in, in ministry. And, and yet, yet, notice what he says to them here. He says, he says that in their religion, all the religious activity, they are missing the weightier matters of the law, which Jesus says are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That's Matthew 23, 23. The weightier matters of the law are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice is giving people their rights, what is due to them. And specifically, when the Bible talks about this, it talks about giving rights to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the refugee. 
Therefore, all right, if we are not caring for these people, we are missing, as the New Testament author uh, James says, the heart of true religion. True religion, undefiled before God, okay, is to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. It is to care for them. If we are not caring for the most vulnerable people amongst us, we are missing the heart of true Christianity. We have a clear symptom of nominal Christianity. Number five, and uh, if you're not angry yet, you're probably not listening, but even so, if you've made it this far, I can guarantee that this one is going to get you, because the fifth symptom is what? It's greed. It's greed. The book of Malachi is most famous for what it has to say about generosity, about giving, about greed, and so let's look at that passage now. Pick up in verse seven of chapter three. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. A clear sign of nominal Christianity is a love of money, as evidenced by a lack of generosity towards God. The word translated rob here in verse 8, rob, robbing, all right, is really rare in the Old Testament, and it means to take forcibly. All right, so when you see this word rob, don't think of just like taking someone, taking something from someone. Rather, it means to oppress, to pillage, to plunder. In other words, it's a very violent word. Tim Keller says it's the sort of word you would use to describe a wealthy, powerful country coming in and despoiling, plundering, pillaging, and raping in a weaker or poorer town. And you will note that it's such a violent word that the Israelites respond with, how are we oppressing you? How are we plundering you? To which God answers, that's what greed is. That's what a lack of generosity is. It's nothing less than doing violence to me. Now, there's at least two things. There's a lot more than two, but I'm just going to point out two things that we need to realize here. One is that greed is evil. Greed is evil. By the way, biblically speaking, being greedy and being ungenerous are synonymous. I know that you would much rather think of yourself as ungenerous than greedy. Greedy sounds so nasty, right? You'd much rather be ungenerous than greedy. They are basically the same thing. If you're not being generous to God with the resources he has given you, you are being greedy. And the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is clear that greed is evil. As Paul tells us, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So so let me not mince words with you here this morning. It's evil not to give back to God a portion of what he has given to you. I just want to lay it out. We're being evil if we're not being generous to God. We're robbing from him. Now, you might have a hard time understanding that, really digging down deep in your soul. So let me explain it in this way. Everything that we have has been given to us by whom? 
My God. Absolutely everything. Everything that we have isn't actually ours, it's his. And he has given us the resources that we have in this time and place. So yes, that we can provide for our needs, have our needs met. So yes, that we can enjoy this good creation. But above all, God has given us what we have so that we might invest in his kingdom and be a part of helping him to accomplish his purposes for this earth, which is primarily the building of his church and the spread of the gospel. Therefore, okay, when we don't use those resources in that way, what are we actually doing? We're stealing from God. We're robbing from him. We're pillaging him. We are oppressing him. Think of it this way. You are essentially a money manager. The the New Testament word is a steward. You're kind of like a a financial advisor. So, So how would you feel if the person who is responsible for investing your money for you and caring for your money for you took that money, okay, and ran off with it, okay? You gave them all this money. It's your whole retirement, okay? They're responsible to invest it and to care for it, to keep it for you. How would you feel if they bought themselves a vacation home in the Caribbean and moved there and left you with nothing? Would you, would you consider that wrong? Would, would you consider that downright evil? I just have to tell you, friends, if you're not investing God's resources in his kingdom work, you're doing the exact same thing to him. Plain and simple, that's the truth. So let's then talk for a second about this tithing issue, all right? Because that says, bring the tithes and the contributions into my house. So let's talk about tithing for a second. I've taught before. Uh, many of you maybe here were not uh, here for that. But I've been clear that I don't believe that New Testament believers are actually required to tithe. All right? there, there's no command in the New Testament saying, hey, you need to tithe like the Jewish people were required to tithe in the Old Testament. All right? However, here, here's what I, I want you to consider. Don't you think, given the fact that we live on this side of the cross— that we have a much better view, a much better picture of how generous God has been to us. Don't you think it's a little ridiculous to use that as an excuse to give less than 10% rather than more? In other words, and here's what people do. Well, we're not required to tithe, so I'm not going to give anything. But by the way, lovingly, a lot of you don't give anything. Zilch. Nothing. Now, I don't know what excuse you're using. I I don't know what excuse you could use. But I do think it's a little ridiculous to look at the Old Testament and say, in light of how generous God has been to me, in light of how Jesus became poor so that I might become rich, I'm going to use the excuse that we're not required to tithe to give little or nothing. We live on this side of the cross, all right? We have a great picture of how generous God has been to us. That ought to motivate us and that ought to compel us to be as generous as we possibly can. Now, let me give you some some guidance here as to what exactly does that mean. If you were to come to me and say, hey, I want to sit down. Uh, I want to talk about how much I should give. Tell me how much I should give. I never tell anybody how much they should give. Never. Not even one time have I ever done that uh, here. Instead, here's what I would tell you. I would tell you that the basic principles that we see Old Testament and New is that God deserves our first and our best. And so I would encourage you to begin with a tithe, a 10%. 
and then to trust and to watch what God is going to do with that 10%. You'll, what does it say here in Malachi chapter 3? God says, put me to the test and, and wait and see if I will not open up the heavens to you and pour down on you until there is no more need. Give 10%, trust God's going to provide, and then as he does, because he always does. By the way, um, who has more resources than you? God does. Can you ever outgive God? You can't. It's just not possible to do. Try it. God says, just test me in it. And then as he gives to you, back to you, gives you more, continue to grow in your generosity. Now, in order to push my luck just as far as I can here this morning, I'm going to go one further. And this is not for everybody. All right, uh, but there are uh, certainly uh, uh, maybe I should put it this way: there is certainly a good percentage of Harmony Bible Church that can give significantly more than ten percent. In, in other words, you you give ten percent, that ninety percent gives you a whole lot to live on, a whole lot to do with a whole lot of other things. All right, so here's what I want to encourage you: if God has given you in abundance, if he has blessed you financially, I want to encourage you to stretch yourself. C.S. Lewis said, here, here's basically what he said. He said, give until it begins to, to hurt. Be, give until it begins to make an impact in your life. Give until it actually becomes a sacrifice. And, and let me tell you, there's such an opportunity that we have as a church to make an impact for the kingdom. And if, if that's going to be the case, we need the people that God has blessed. with. Why has God blessed you abundantly? He's blessed you abundantly so that you can be a blessing. Take that challenge up. Sit down. You might need to look at your life. You might, might need to say, just kind of do an overview and say, do we really need this? Do we really need to be spending money on this? Do we really need another vehicle? Do we really need to do the add-on? Do we really need to be traveling all of these places? Do, do we really need to spend all that money? Or would it be better used to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven? Lay up for yourself. In fact, this is for everybody. Lay up for yourself treasure where you're going to have it the longest. You with me? And you aren't going to have it the longest here. You're going to have it the longest there. Not more can be said. Let's move on to the last disputation or the last argument, the last symptom of nominal Christianity, and that's unbelief. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Here's what God says. Uh, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. What are the Israelites expressing here? They're expressing unbelief. They're questioning whether or not God can truly provide and meet their needs, where he can truly be trusted to do what he says he's going to do. Now, we've seen this. But we're almost done, by the way, so, so hang in here, all right? But, but, but this is key, all right? Because we've seen it already several times in the book that, that really at the heart, the root of the Israelites' problem is their unbelief. They just don't believe and they don't trust God, which tells us that at its root, the root problem with nominal Christianity is unbelief. It's a failure to believe that God can be trusted, that he will, to quote Hebrews eleven six, reward those who diligently seek him. And I have to tell you, as I 
look at my life and, and consider all the times that I've shown signs of nominal Christianity, I've come to realize they would have, they, they have all been caused by unbelief, by a failure to believe that God is good, by a failure to believe that he will provide, that he wants what's best for me, and that he can be trusted to do what he says he's going to do. I've come to realize that the root of all my spiritual struggles is unbelief. You need to know this, this morning, by the way, that my struggle with um, unbelief is not just a thing of the past. It's also a present reality. You need not to think that I'm just kind of hammering away here this morning and just like, you guys got all these problems. Uh, one of the reasons I can be so passionate about this stuff is because God's been, he, he's been working on your heart maybe like for 40 minutes now. I've had like the last 60 hours, Okay. It just hammering on me. I, these, these are my struggles too. And, and therefore, here's what I found uh, in my life, a, a prayer that I just had to pray and continue to pray over and over again. I, I've had to say to the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I believe, I, I do believe, but I also am really struggling to believe. I, I, I'm struggling to believe you can provide for me. That if I, if I give this, that, that you're actually going to take care of me. I, I'm struggling to, to believe all right, that, that you are good, that you're going to take care of me. I, I'm just help me to believe. I believe, help my unbelief. And, and I want to show you now in closing how God does so, not just for me, but for you as well. How does he help our unbelief? Or, or to put it in another way, what's the solution Phenomenal Christianity. We see this in chapter 4. Last three verses we're going to look at. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now, now get this, friends. Highlight this. Circle this. This is, this is the very last prophecy about Jesus in the Old Testament. All these prophecies that we've been looking at now for, for eight months— beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Here's the last one. God is promising, okay, that there is coming a day that he is going to send his son, S-O-N, and when his son comes, he will eradicate all darkness. He will eradicate all nominalism, okay, like the sun, S-U-N, eradicates the darkness. You understand, by the way, that, that darkness is essentially the absence of light, Right? So that where there is light, and Jesus is the light of the world, when you see that light, when you believe in that light, when you trust in that light, what happens to the darkness in your life? It flees. It goes away. Your nominalism disappears. Now, what do you have to do in order to experience it? Actually, here's what he says. says, the son of righteousness okay, will rise with healing in his wings. How do you experience the healing of the Son of God? The key word in verse 2 is fear. You have to fear him. You have to fear him. Now, now, what does it mean to fear? Does it mean to be scared of? No. It means to obey him. 
It means to submit to him. It means to fully give your life to him. If you want to see the darkness eradicated in your life, if you want to move from being a nominal Christian, if you want to get rid of ingratitude and self-centeredness and greed and all of those things, what do you have to do? You have to bow the knee to Jesus. Fully bow the knee to Jesus. You have to go all in with him. Not just a little bit in, all the way in. And if you do so, what will be the result? Well, notice what the passage says. It says that you will go out like a calf leaping from the stalls. Now, now what's, what's in the picture there? Well, yesterday, I love how God does this. Yesterday I was running down the road from where I live. Down the road from where I live, there's an elk farm. And as I'm running by the elk farm, I look over, and there's all of these older elk just laying there looking at me, and there is this one calf just running around in circles like crazy. <laughs> all the other older elk are going, how stupid, you stupid idiot, okay? But, but what's the, why is the young calf running? Because it's glad to be alive. It's rejoicing in its new life. You see, when you give your life to Jesus, you get new life, and you rejoice in that new life. And you also, by the way, get to rejoice in the defeat of your enemies, the defeat of Satan's sin and death. Now, here's the thing, though, that you, that you really got to get. There's also a warning in this passage. See the warning in verse 1? This son of righteousness is coming. And on that day, he's going to set those who do not believe, who do not fear him, ablaze. And they will be scorched and will be left with nothing. In other words, this son of righteousness is going to come not only in healing, but in judgment. Maybe we could put it this way. Jesus will either be a furnace to you or he will be a son to you. He will either be the one who heals you or he will be the one who burns you. Listen, friend, there's no middle of the road when it comes to Jesus. You're either in or you're out. You're either fearing him, walking with him, or one day you're going to be burned by him. That's what it says. I'm not making it up. It's right there. So is Jesus going to be a furnace to you, or is he going to be the sun to you? Will he heal you, or will he burn you? Now here's the silver lining and all that. Here's the wonderful truth. You can know today, by the way, that if you place your faith in him, that Jesus was the one who went into the furnace for you. Jesus is the one who took the judgment for you. Jesus is the one who experienced the wrath, the fury of God's judgment against your sin. Jesus, in essence, experienced hell for you so that you don't have to. Will you place your faith and trust in him as a result and allow him to heal you? And if he has healed you, will you give your life to fully serving him? Why don't you bow your heads with me this morning?